0: I'm Michael Levitin, and this is episode two of The Tell. I don't give anybody themes uh, that they have to follow with their stories. Uh, these stories are not thematically linked, not at the <laughs> uh, the live event or the podcast. Um, they're very chaotic. People can talk about whatever they want, which means that you have no idea what you're going to hear. You go to the live events and somebody walks on stage. There's this crazy moment where they could talk about literally anything. You have no idea. Um, it's really surprising a story could start off being funny and get really tragic you, you have no idea or the other way around um, and I love that feeling so I tried to preserve that for the podcast by not putting summaries of the stories up anywhere and like not you know telling you before in the narration what the stories are going to be about so I, I'm trying to preserve for you that crazy feeling of, of unpredictability of having no idea what's coming so today we have Adam Green And Jenny Ellescue telling stories. And we have Luke Temple's live performance of a story song, what I call a memoir song, because it's a true story. It's a genre (laughs) that I love and that I gave a name. It's a memoir song. Uh, So, yeah, we have a memoir song by Luke Temple. Uh, This is episode two of The Tell.
1: Seven years ago, I'm getting divorced, and uh, I'm uh, dealing with it through drinking and uh, taking a bunch of pills, (laughs) and uh, I'm kind of self-imposed in exile in uh, Los Angeles uh, where uh, I've just decided that I should go, and um, my soon-to-be ex-wife is in New York, and, like, I'm kind of scared to go back to New York because I'm thinking maybe, like, I would get back together with her or something, or I don't know what it was, so I'm just kind of freaked out. And I'm in, uh, I'm in L.A. and, uh, I'm actually sitting by a pool in a mansion because <laughs> I'm like Cato Kalin style, like crashing <laughs> at some, at, you know, at this mansion and, um, no one's around. And I'm by a pool and I get a phone call from my manager and she says, um, I got a great job for you. Uh, these Germans are doing a play about uh, Paul Oster's book, Timbuktu. Uh, and um, they're going to do a theatrical rendition and, uh, you know, uh, they want you to write the music. And I was like, oh, cool, you know, I, I've never done anything like that before. And she, they're like, she's like, and it pays $20,000. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing, okay, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I went out and I got the book *Timbuktu*, which is by Paul Oster, and uh, it's basically about a homeless guy and his dog um, on the streets, and they're the only two characters in the play. And um, so I read this book, and I was like, "Oh, cool! You know, I'll just start working on this music like when I when I come back to New York, because like L.A. could be really distracting." <laughs> and so I come back to New York, and um, I don't I don't go back to my house. Actually, my, my ex-wife is living at the house, so I I go my friend's letting me crash at her apartment. So I'm in the West Village and I'm like, you know, sort of still not really writing anything. Um, And basically like, uh, I went to some kind of party and I met a girl at the party um, who's really, really, really beautiful. And um, she was, uh, I mean, really young. I would say, I mean, I would say she was like about, like, I don't know how old she was, maybe 20 years old. And, uh, she, uh, uh, was, like, talking about stuff like real estate, like buying houses. (laughs) 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 So it was just like, you know, okay, well, what's up with this girl? I don't know. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) but for some reason, uh, we were, we were, um, I guess we were getting along or something, and I ended up, uh, getting her her phone number, and, um, a few weeks later, I find out that the, the girl, uh, who's named Sophie, that her, um, she's actually Sophie Oster. She's the daughter of Paul Oster. And so I was thinking like, no, I'm going to have something interesting to talk to her about next time (laughs) that, uh, that I see her. Um, but I actually didn't see her again because I was like really just cruising around just being really reckless. I ended up falling in love with another girl, like really fast. (laughs) And, um, so. So this this girl, we, she she was doing some work at Nylon Magazine, and so um, we went to Nylon Magazine to do like a a little segment where like I was going to play some songs, and um, uh, at the office, you know, I was just sort of like I don't know, just blabbing about stuff, and I started talking about how I'm going to do this play, it's like Paul Oster's play of Timbuktu, and the office seemed really interested in it, and I was just like, yeah, it's going to be so cool. And flash forward a couple of weeks, like, they actually published a, uh, in page six, there was an article that said, I'm writing the Broadway <laughs> musical <laughs> for Timbuktu, Paul Auster. And you know, my, my parents are like so happy. <laughs> And you know, like, and the funny thing is i I haven't written any anything yet <laughs> so uh, so so you know so I, I was just like, okay, cool, I'm gonna get started, you know, and I was not <laughs> in a good way, you know, I was like getting divorced, I was just feeling really shitty, and like i i was I couldn't write anything <laughs> at all and, uh, and and I was like taking different pills like that would make you black out or like whatever, you know like. And I, and I would do these writing sessions, like, with myself, like, in my friend's apartment. Like, you know, it's the dog. Like, just, I'm a dog or something. <laughs> like, you know, like, stuff like that. The songs are, like, crazy. And, and, so, and so finally, I actually met with my manager, and I was like, it's cool. You know, I've been really... I just figured out, you know, you can't overthink this kind of stuff, you know? You got to just, like, write. Like, you know, it's just... I'm just hammering them out, you know? I'm just writing all these songs. So she's like, can I, can I hear them? And so she... She came over to, uh, to, to my place, and so I, I played her uh, two songs, and she was like, these are horrible. <laughs> she's like, I, you, can't, you can't do this. She's like, I, I, you can't, you can't like, give these to, these to these guys. And I was like, why? I'm like, it's going to be cool if we record them. It'd be really, it would sound different. And she's like, no, no, these are, these are really bad. So, so she actually, in front of me, calls, uh, calls the producer of the play who's a guy named Franz. Um, And uh, so she calls up Franz. She's like, yeah, Adam can't do the play. So I'm watching her and it's really fast. And I was like, what did they say? And she's like, oh, you know, they said they were disappointed, but like, you know, I got you out of it, you know? And and so I was like, okay, good. Okay, so I don't have to do this stuff anymore. And so I was going on with my life. And all of a sudden, um, one day my dad asked me um, about the Broadway play that I'm writing. (laughs) And so I was like, oh no, it's cool, I'm, I, we, I quit. And he was like, you, you what? And I was like, no, no, I just, like, I'm out of it. I was like, we're not able to write it. And he goes, you want to be a quitter? He was just like, you want people to think that about you, like that you would go and you would quit professionally on people? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, this is your reputation in the business? You want this to, and I was like, but it's Germany. I was like, I don't know, it's like, it's an-. and he was like, He he freaked me out so bad like he actually he gave me like a talking to and so I was like I told my manager. I was like we got to get this job back (laughs) So she calls them and she's like I got the job back I was like great great great, but still I hadn't written anything so now came this time in my life where I had to actually go play some concerts and I went to Australia and actually with Chris who's up there he's he played drums and so we go we go to Australia and we took a, a bunch of these like Flexerall pills on the plane and crashed out for like twelve hours. Like it makes you die, so we just died. And then we like woke up in Australia. I and mean, in Australia, I'd never been there before. In Melbourne, um, get out of the airport. I'm sorry, get get on the customs line. I turn on my phone. It's a text from my my ex wife. Um, call me. And then it says, "Do you, do you have?" Oh, sorry. I call her. She, she and she goes do you have a YouTube account called (laughs) SmugMug? This is, like, seven years ago. I I don't explain it, but, like, I didn't even know that you could have a YouTube separate account. Like, I just was like, I don't, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, there's been a bit of a scandal at my nephew's school. (laughs) There's a guy named SmugMug, and he's sending, like, you know, pornographic messages to the kids at school. And... uh, they think that it's you. <laughs> so I was like, "What?" And I was like, "I was like, well, you got, you gotta clear my name." <laughs> and she's like, "I was like, and just like, so, so I was like, like okay, so so then so then um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry so, so then she goes, I, "I don't even know you anymore." I was like, okay, so an hour later, we get to our hotel room. There's a call from the, her nephew's mom. He's like, she, she, she's like, yes, yeah, sorry about that. It turned out not to be you or whatever. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so now I'm in the hotel room or whatever. We, we have this place in Melbourne and so we're like, um, so so the funniest thing is, so I had this room in this, like, in this weird, like, apartment that you can rent called Quest, and for some reason, like, magic was going on in there because, like, all of a, all of a sudden, uh, I started to write, like, the best music, like, I've ever in my life. Like, I swear, I, I don't know, like, I, I, the funniest thing is my, my manager had, and I forgot to say this, she had actually gotten them to agree that I could write the whole thing instrumental, which was actually, like, a really great move for her because, like, I think I was having a lot of problems with the lyrics and trying to be way too like square one about the lyrics. So uh, she said I could write it instrumental. And so I, uh, I really like started to get inspired in Australia. And I'm just like writing all this stuff and feeling like really great. And like, um, you know, we came back to, uh, to New York and we recorded this album of all this sort of like symphonic music that I wrote in, in Australia. And um, I was so excited about it. And I was like, I can't wait to play this for Paul Oster. You know, and um, there came the day when Franz was coming to New York to hear uh, to hear the music that I wrote, and so my manager was like, "Okay, cool. So here's the deal: it's going to be Franz, Paul Oster, and you are going to have this like this meeting where you're going to play these songs for him." And I couldn't wait. I was just like, "Okay, great. We got like carrots and dip and <laughs> wine, and you know, we're like all the." This- in, in her house, you know, <laughs> and um, oh, so, so Franz comes, and Franz, first of all, his name apparently was like, not Franz, it was, was just his like, director name. <laughs> but he came in with like, this like, I don't know how to explain it, because I don't want to be like, he was like, had a big scarf and like, European <laughs> hair, and he's like a man, like I feel like he was like, a man of letters. Like, he was a very theatrical European guy and he, he came with a, like a boy, like, he, like his boy. Like, no, I mean, I don't mean like his boy, like he came with like, he had like a crony that was like this young guy that like was quiet the whole time. <laughs> and so it was like, and so, so anyway so we start sitting in there and he starts telling me about Paul Oster you know, what kind of guy is he, you know, oh, he's like, uh, he's so stylish, you know, he's like, uh, it's not so much the way he dresses, it's the way he is. You know, he's like a just, he just looks stylish, everything he does. And I was like, oh, cool, I can't wait to meet him. And so, anyways, like, time was going by, he was not there. And he was like, I don't know what's wrong. I mean, like, you know, uh, maybe we should just listen to the record. And I was like, at this point, I was totally mortified because I was like, no, this is actually the thing that I really wanted more than anything was to play this guy, this music I wrote for his, for his piece of art. And so for me, that was like the main purpose of the night. And so they, they were like, no, no, let's just play it. So I was like, begrudgingly played him the record, which I mean, he deserved to hear because he paid me for it. <laughs> so I played him the record, they really liked it. And then he's like, okay, cool. So now let's we'll go to dinner. Paul will meet us there. You know, uh, uh, okay. So we go down to Soho, we go to this fancy restaurant. We're in this long line, you know, having a drink, whatever. Um, Paul Oster's not there, and so I was just like telling my manager, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know, like this is so weird. You know, it's like, and, the, and, the, and he's just like, well, he got, you know, his publisher knows that he's he's expecting this dinner, and I was just like, okay, well, how long are we going to wait for him? You know, and and um, he he just wasn't he wasn't showing up, and so like we, we go to sit on this table, and I was just like, this really is kind of a drag for me, and uh. uh I just, I don't know why I thought this, but I had this, I just remembered in my head that like, and this is the stupidest thing that you could ever think, but I was like, I have his daughter's phone number in my phone. <laughs> it's like the stupidest idea that's ever crossed a drunken man's brain. Um, but I was starting to be like, okay, well, I don't know, I just was desperate. I don't know why, I just wanted to know what was happening. And I texted her something, so it was like so obnoxious. Like, I don't even know what it was. If we read it out loud right now, I'd probably die. But it was like something to the extent of like, hey, I'm doing this Paul Oster play music. Like, where's your dad? <laughs> <laughs> Supposed to meet me for dinner. Well, why is, why is he not here? <laughs> something stupid, crazy. But she wrote back really fast. <laughs> and she's like, my dad is in France. <laughs> And I was she's like, hold on, another minute later. And I'm looking down at the phone, you know, and these guys are talking to me at dinner. And (laughs) and they're like, she's like, my dad says there's no play of Timbuktu happening. (laughs) My dad says, who are these guys? (laughs) I was like, looking at my phone, like, who the fuck are you guys? (laughs) You know, talking about how he looks. Like, I'm like, you guys have never met this guy. You know, and, and so I was like I told my manager, I was like, we gotta get fucking over there. So we like go out and like, we're like having a cigarette or something. And she's, I'm like, we gotta get paid right now. <laughs> 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 so we go, so we go back, um, we go back to the meal and I'm like trying to act cool. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, what's, what's, what's Paul Oster really like? Why didn't you tell me? So anyways, so we like, we wrapped up the dinner and, um, uh, okay. So, so the, so maybe two days later, she actually texts me and she says, she, she still hates me. I think probably even, I don't know to this day, but she, she does not like me. Um, and, and so she said, you know, uh, I I cleared up with my dad. I think there's maybe some, for some really small, like kind of, you know, student productions or things or whatever. Like, you know, he might, like, his publisher might waive permission to do something, like a small play or something. And it's probably okay that they have permission to do this play in Germany or whatever. They probably didn't have to ask him. His publisher probably did. And I was like, okay, okay, cool, cool. So anyway, so then that was clear. So then they they said, well, I can come to see the play. Right, more like I have to come to see the play. (laughs) (laughs) So they get me a, a ticket. And so I actually bring my girlfriend, we go to Tübingham, Germany to see this production. And um, Tübingham is this tiny little town where it's like, they got like a castle and that's like it. You see it, that's, you see the castle and that's it. So, so that's, and, and the thing is, my, my girlfriend at the time, I didn't know this, but she's actually completely fallen in love with somebody else. <laughs> and she uh, wants to stay like in the hotel room. She's like not, not into it. So really, she's like, she's gone cold in the hotel room. I'm, I go to this playhouse, it's like a student playhouse. <laughs> and I get there just in time for the rehearsal of the play. Okay, but the thing about the play is that, it's two characters, but um, the, uh, the dog character is uh, actually played by, by, by a, l- a little girl with, da- with Down syndrome. <laughs> It's played by a young uh, girl with Down syndrome. The dog, <laughs> so I'm. Um, I'm not even. I don't even know enough about Down syndrome to know if that's like a. That's a moral issue, because like she was like, enjoying to play the character and she was doing a good job. But the fact is, like I'm just trying to illustrate that when I got there, one of the surprises <laughs> was that one of the characters was the dog was a girl with Down syndrome and the guy was a. Uh, an old man (laughs) who spoke in German, so, like, they were doing this play, (laughs) and, like, I I watched the whole rehearsal of the play, um, which I, you know, I can't understand, because the play is in German, and then, um, you know, and, and I'm, like, the guest of honor at this thing, you know, I'm just, like, (laughs) and then, like, uh, okay, so then, then they're, like, okay, well, now we have to go to the dress rehearsal. We have to watch the dress rehearsal. So I watched the dress rehearsal of the entire play. And then there was a dinner. And then there was the play. (laughs) So then for the third time that day, I watched an entire theatrical production in German. (laughs) So, So it happened and like, you know, and then as I was getting driven back from the, from the play, there was like, um, I was getting driven back by Franz's boy. Um, <laughs> I'm in the front seat, he's driving, my girlfriend's in the back. And like, he's, he's just like, so, what did you think? <laughs> and I was just like, uh... Well, I don't know. I mean, it was was cool. I mean, I don't know, like, a lot about plays, but I thought it was pretty cool. Um, You know, and I don't really speak German, so I didn't really understand it, but it seemed like everyone was doing a really good job, and it's just cool to be part of something like that. (laughs) 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 And he's like, hmm? He goes, I didn't like it. (laughs) I was just like, fuck you. I'm like, get me home, you know? And so, I was like, so many, like, just bad things that happened um, in the course of trying to do this ridiculous thing, you know? And what's funny is that the, uh, my, my record label at the end of it decided that I did this whole thing out of contract, and they actually took all the money for it.
2: This, uh, this is actually a story about a story uh, that I wrote back in 2008 when I was writing full time for Rolling Stone. Um, they assigned me a piece profiling this guy known as the Marlboro Marine. I don't know if any of you have heard of this dude. I'm going to show you a picture of him. Um, during uh, the second Battle of Fallujah in 2004, he was photographed uh, like so. It became, you know, like an iconic image from the Iraq War. This this isn't what he looked like uh, when I met him. I mean, I did, I, you wouldn't really recognize him when I met him four years later. This is what uh, he looked like. His name is uh, James Blake Miller, or Blake as he, uh, you know, preferred to be known. Um, and he, he had, you know, participated in the Battle of Fallujah and been photographed at this moment of you know, complete confusion and despair. And, you know, there was something to it. There was something to that image of him uh, looking completely bewildered by what, what he was experiencing. And the, the picture was picked up and ended up running in like, you know, 150 different publications worldwide. And uh, it, it made him sort of overnight into, you know, a, a celebrity, really. He came from this tiny town in Kentucky called Joe Nancy, named after the people who founded the town, Joe and Nancy. Yes, you might. <laughs> Weren't their names? Uh, population 297, a three digit number, 297 people. Um, but, you know, the New York Post ran this photo with the headline, Smokin', which classic New York Post BS, Fallujah uh, had actually been the bloodiest battle involving American troops since the Vietnam War, actually. <laughs> Uh, with coalition forces losing uh, 54 killed and 425 wounded just during that initial phase of a battle that actually went on for several weeks, and we were definitely not in the classic sense of the term smoking. Uh, Miller sure was, though. When I met him in early 2008, four years after that photo, he had a -a five-pack-a-day habit and was living up to his Marlboro Marine name. He also uh, had severe post-traumatic stress disorder and had been discharged from the Marines three years earlier after he blacked out and beat the shit out of a fellow officer. Uh, Studies estimate that 20% of the more than 2.5 million US troops who served in Iraq will suffer from some form of psychological industry with PTSD being the most common and that's like 500,000 people essentially. In 2008 Miller hadn't been to a doctor in over a year and he, he seemed to have fallen off the government's radar. He'd tried like antidepressants and all the meds they give you but they just seemed to make, you know, his jitteriness and nightmares worse and like many disabled vets Miller felt betrayed by the military and neglected by the VA and, you know, misunderstood by pretty much everyone else. He said, people hear PTSD and they think that means you're crazy. My aunt tells her kids, don't go around Blake. He might flip out and shoot you. Uh, Miller became a civilian exactly one year to the day after that famous photo first ran. Uh, Following his discharge, he moved back home to Kentucky to Joe Nancy, a town nestled deep in the Appalachian Mountains and the kind of place that inspires thoughts of escape. Unemployment in the area at that time was 35% higher than the national average and the median household income was less than $24,000 a year. Only 10% of residents in Pike County where Blake lived earned college diplomas. And like so many people who enlist, Miller had been looking for a way out of a bleak situation but returned to an even bleaker one. Uh, Ever since his time in Iraq, Miller rarely slept more than once every few days, and uh, when he could get some sleep, he made sure he had a gun under his pillow. And when he visited friends nearby, they gave him a guest gun to use for that purpose. Uh, His entire life, I'm not kidding, had been uh, thrown into a strange and purposeless blend of chaos and inertia. He didn't do much besides smoke, drink beer, and ride his Harley, but he seemed to teeter perpetually on the brink of a meltdown. He told me that occasionally he would become so overwhelmed by blind rage that he imagined shooting a stranger in the kneecaps or beating a fellow bar patron to a bloody pulp. He said, I can be drinking a beer and get pissed off and think, I'm going to break this bottle and cut that guy's throat over there. And then something hits me and I snap out of it. Once, an affable troublemaker eager to go out with friends his own age, the 23-year-old Miller at that point was spending most of his time alone or with this outlaw motorcycle gang he had joined called the Kentucky Highwaymen, who are like, you know, one percenters. They're like one of those motorcycle gangs that the government has like deep surveillance on because they're doing some seriously illegal shit. But a lot of those guys are Vietnam vets who also have uh, PTSD. Uh, it was actually through the Kentucky Highwaymen that like I w- was able to track him down because, you know, it's not like when you're doing a story on Britney Spears and you call her publicist, it's like this is a guy who lives off the radar. So, um, you know, I just called a bunch of different sort of local biker hangouts and eventually somebody, you know, sort of put us in touch and I got a phone number for him. So uh, he was, you know, he was up for doing a story, you know, pretty much immediately. The photo had made him so well known that he had had, you know, journalists come down there and, and meet him to tell his story because the fact that he was suffering from from PTSD was, you know, he was emblematic, he had become emblematic of, you know, two things at once, I suppose, in a way. Um, and, you know, he was game to do the story, and not, so I booked my travel and and got myself a room, and uh, and I arrived in, in Pike County, nearby Nancy and waited, you know, texted with Blake and waited for him to show up. I had heard from from C- Luis Cinco, the photographer who took that photo and who'd formed this elaborate relationship with Blake that you know he would, he would often disappear when he was supposed to meet up. And for a while, it, it actually seemed like he might flake on me. Uh, by the time he picked me up from my hotel that night, it was already past like 9 p.m. and I'd been in town for several hours. And it was February and cold and rainy and nighttime. Uh, but when he picked me up, he was wearing dark sunglasses he hated being recognized, which he frequently was. So he'd grown, you know, a pretty large beard to cover most of his face, and he usually wore a hat and sunglasses to further disguise himself. Besides doing like work of some kind for the motorcycle gang, which sometimes involved just beating the shit out of someone, uh, you know, he did some odd jobs around his dad's property. And other than that, he didn't have that much to distract him from his disturbing memories of the war. So. He spent most of his time driving around aimlessly, either on his Harley or in this green pickup truck, which is what he picked me up in uh, that night when we first met. We drove down the road to, to Walmart, of course, to buy a bunch of beer, and um, at that time he was receiving a monthly benefit of uh, 2500 bucks a month in disability payments, which was compensation not just for uh, the PTSD and, and psychological injuries, but also for an array of physical impairments. Uh, he had hearing loss in his right ear, he, he couldn't really hear it all out of it. And he had shrapnel scarring and uh, this bacterial infection in his tear ducts that made his eyes all like goopy and gross, which is also why he wore the shades. Um, and he had no cartilage left in either knee and the muscles in his feet had calcified from carrying a 200 pound pack on his back. And, you know, he said that I'd pay the government Three times would they give me to have back the sanity I had before. But, you know, in spite of all of these different uh, afflictions, we're driving together in a downpour and winding Kentucky roads, and he's steering with his shrapnel scarred knees while he opens a beer bottle with a switchblade. So, you know, badass. It felt like I was in an action-adventure movie, and I was just like, uh, this could go one of two ways. Uh, He suggested we go to a bar, but uh, then realized that it was, like, the middle of nowhere, and bars closed pretty early. It was a random weeknight. Um, So he suggested we go back to his trailer, which, you know, I wanted to do anyway because journalism or whatever. And, uh... (laughs) So he had this trailer, like, behind his father's house, and it was, as you'd probably guess, it was, like, you know, empty bottles everywhere and lots of overflowing ashtrays. It was sort of a couple of steps above a squat, and he sat down on the floor and lit up a cigarette and leaned up against the side of this, like, really gross, like, you know, lazy boy that was just cigarette brown or something. Um, He said that that was his favorite spot in the trailer um, because from there... He could anticipate any possible threat, you know, like keep an eye on all avenues of approach an enemy might take. He knew it was only seven steps to the front door, but uh, he sometimes worried whether he had enough gas in the truck to get out of there. He would sit there cycling through procedures the Marine Corps drilled into his head, defend, reinforce, attack, withdraw, delay. He told me he wished, you know, someone had told him there might come a time when all that shit you learned, you might not be able to turn it off. Uh, He turned on the television and and flipped quickly past CNN, which earlier that night had broadcast a debate between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, 2008 style. Uh, He said, I don't care much for the news, but I hope like hell Hillary wins. I just think she's a bad bitch. She's great. Uh, Television played country music videos in the background for the next hour while we talked, and, and then Blake switched to the Hustler channel and ordered porn. I'm sorry, Blake said, blushing. I hope you don't mind. We had porn on all the time when I was a little kid. It's just like background noise to me. We would sit down to dinner, and my dad got mad if the TV wasn't on Playboy. In spite of all of Blake's candor, there was one thing at the end of our first night of conversation he said that he wanted me to keep off the record. He didn't want me to mention that he smoked pot. He was worried his dad would be pissed, which seemed so random to me. I said it was fine by me. We'd smoked a bunch of pot, obviously. Uh, After all, he had revealed so much already of so much greater, you know, honesty and depth that it didn't seem like that big a deal to just sort of leave it between us. Um, And as it got later, I decided to break off our conversation and continue the next day. I told him I thought it was time for him to drive me back to my hotel. and, And then as I stood up, I realized that I was really fucking stoned. I, like, I don't know if... Kentucky weed is, you know, notoriously insane. But the people here who know me know that I can smoke quite a bit and feel fine. But it kicked my ass. And I guess I must have been having, you know, like a whitey, as they call it, where you're just like, whoa, I might barf, I might faint. And I stood up and he he sort of noticed. And, you know, I sat back down on the couch immediately and was like, whoa, what the fuck? Um, And, uh, you know, he had told me that he had a guest room and that you know, Louise, the photographer, had stayed in the guest room, and it was chill, but, you know, come on. I wasn't, it's not like I was going to stay in that guest room. That had never been the plan, but then I was having a whitey, and so I figured, okay, well, you know, he said, you can, if you want to go lay down for a minute. So I I go into the guest room, and, and, uh, you know, he offered me blankets, and I was just like, it's fine. I just need to lay down. I was so stoned in my clothes and just lay down, and he left and closed the door behind him. And and then I was just so stoned, just laying there in the dark, like feeling kind of embarrassed, but just trying to kind of de-stone myself. Um, and I could hear him, because it was a trailer, so the walls are kind of thin, and he had been getting all these texts and phone calls from some chick that he was trying to like meet up with at some point. I was really hoping he wouldn't have a girl come over like to fuck him while I was having a whitey in the other room. And um, since he ha- couldn't hear out of one of his ears, he had to make all of his calls on speakerphone. So I was like in there just freaking out and listening to what was going on. And the he, he got voicemail repeatedly and then some more time passed and uh, I hear a knock on the door <laughs> of the guest room. And I was just like, oh God, no, what is this? And he opens the door and, and uh, he says, are you awake? I'm like, yeah. And he he says so i called some people and, and and no one's around so so i was just thinking maybe do you want to fuck <laughs> and i was genuinely shocked because you know yeah he had porn on or whatever but it was there wasn't like any kind of vibe you know we were having like heavy fucking conversation and I don't know. I didn't think, I had, up until that point, I, you know, admittedly I was super stoned, but I didn't think, like, oh, something, like, alert, something bad might happen here, even though he, you know, could snap at any minute or whatever, but, which might sound weird, but in spite of all that, I was really surprised and stoned, and then, yes, starting to be a little bit scared, and, you know, I, I just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm here writing this article about you, and it really wouldn't be appropriate, and, you know... He was just like, it was dark. It was just, he was just like silhouetted there. I couldn't really see him. And he just said, yeah, well, you don't know if you don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, he said, he turned around to leave and he goes, "Uh, I'm just gonna go rub one out on the couch then. (laughs) And then he closed the door. So then I'm just like Stone Jenny, like freaking out, like oh god, there's the gun under the pillow, and what if he just fucking snaps on me? And do I try? I can't sleep here. When do I go out and say dry? He's masturbating. <laughs> I don't really want to go out there, um, but I can't. I knew I was like I can't fall asleep here. That would be. I, who even knows? You know what? What the fuck? I, uh, but I'm not gonna like. When am I gonna flee into the raining night of Joe Nancy and just be like, hey? <laughs> 296 other people live here like somebody where's the hotel again um and i realized it was futile so i just tried to relax and 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 ultimately like you know uh, i i just figured you know i'm just gonna have to hope for the best hope that he's not like a maniac or something even though he demonstrably was but uh so I got up and i turned the light on i tried to make like noise in the room like i'm come up now and, uh, and then I made a big production of, of opening the door and, and saying, and I said, I'm coming out now, so put your pants on. And he was, you know, on he was pulling up his pants when I came out. And he, you know, smiled sheepishly and sort of asked if I was okay then. And, you know, we got in the pickup truck. And he, he started back to the hotel, crisis averted, clearly, uh, on the way back to my hotel, he got a call from his lady friend and, and I stared out the window of the pickup truck, but the visibility was terrible. And we were like going up an incline and it got like foggier. I'd never seen that kind of fog before. And then I heard Blake say to his lady friend, yeah, we're just driving over Foggy Mountain right now. And I thought it's called Foggy Mountain, what the fuck? <laughs> And then he got off the phone, and he was stoked because he said, you know, he'd be stopping by this girl's place after he dropped me off. And I wondered, you know, if sex was the only thing that felt good to him anymore, because it probably was. Which just was—I mean, the whole situation was super bleak, obviously. Um, and before I got out of the car, he, you know, was apologized for asking, you know, that inappropriate question, and, you know, said that he's always just been the sort of person to ask what's on his mind. And I told him it was fine. And that I'd see him in the morning, because we were going to be doing another day of reporting. And uh, as I walked out of the car toward the hotel, he, like, made this dramatic turn with his pickup truck and, like, rolled down the window and was like, hey, Jenny. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, if you wasn't doing this here article, would you have? And, you know, I thought for a second, and I said, yeah. (laughs) Only sort of lying. (laughs) And then he goes, sweet. And he closed the door and drove off.
3: Marian started her life in Ireland To a very young mother who couldn't provide Even very young She was good and quiet Her teeth grim brown From a poor person's diet And when she was five Her mother figured She'd have a better life In some house that was bigger So up for adoption Larchmont, New York Taken in by my grandparents And to a family of seven older the only one born of blood she knew things that only she understood everyone else so unaware that every night she'd find her dad drunk in a chair asking her to come sit on daddy's lap alcoholism and all of that crap who was to say if Marianne suffered the hands of her father as did my mother no one to tell 1950s no one taking the test what happens at home is a family's business as far as everyone was concerned she was their perfect little irish princess and Mary. Cop on a horse, he had a walrus type mustache and a muscle car. They had two daughters at 18 of age, but had pictures of girls his daughter's same age. Marianne taught high school, her kids really liked her, but they all felt something nervous inside her. Then on a Monday, getting ready to go in, she felt the four walls quickly rushing in. She called the doctor to come and see He said she was overworked and gave her something to sleep One day the next, then it grew more and more The panic inside her was also outside her door The world and its people were plotting her doom The only safe place was there in her room And Beezy and the girls, they knew something was wrong But they chose not to think about it ever too long Mom was just tired needed her rest to be a mother and a teacher could have happened to the best then on that day she laid in her bed the panic it was pushing the eyes out of her head the doctor had given her some anxiety pills it made her feel psychotic on top of everything else Either lay there, watch her own life dissolve Or reach in the side table for her husband's revolver And that's what she did with her weak little arms And she held it to her head with her weak little arms And it turns out her weakness was her one saving grace And the gun jerk Instead of entering her brain went through her face And Mary was quiet Mary was quiet And in that blackness she had to wander. She had a new face The doctors had put in a new one in its place We went down to visit at Thanksgiving time We hadn't seen her since the accident We didn't know what we would find To my surprise, she seemed better than ever A new confidence and a face put together Still she was quiet, but not quite as weak There was a lift in her posture And something clear in her speech and as we felt, flew home, we felt a little bit strange And how we found the whole thing arranged But who is it for us to say what it takes for someone To find their own worth and will to go on And as for the future, who knows what's in store But our American
0: That was Luke Temple with a live performance of his memoir song titled Mary Ann Was Quiet. He's in the band Here We Go Magic and has lots of solo albums you should listen to. Um, Before that, you had a story by Adam Green, um, who you might know from The Moldy Peaches and his many solo records. But I would really recommend seeing the movie he wrote, directed and starred in. Adam Green's Aladdin. He's currently touring the world playing the soundtrack live and showing the movie. So you should really go see that. It's one of of the wildest works of art ever to exist. Um, And Jenny Elliskew is the other storyteller, uh, and she's a very prolific writer. You can find tons of her writing online. Um, I want to thank Natalia Schween for co-producing The Tell and Gabriel Galvin for helping with the podcast, co-producing the podcast. Um, And uh, if you want to follow us, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Tell Stories. You could follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Um, You can find out more about me at michaelleviton.com and follow me on Instagram at michaelleviton. That was episode two of The Tell.
3: A story you won't tell My
0: I'm reading between the lines I'm peeking between the blinds I'm seeking a fitting rhyme About what a
4: tragedy it'd be If you were mine I don't care about your grammar twists and
3: turns, are you a genius, or a dunce on a stool, it's brilliant,
4: cause it's written by a fool, it's brilliant, cause it's written by a fool. It's written